if you buy a home, then you have the right to do with it as you wish. And particularly to deny others to the privilege of using it as they might want, which is sort of the particular value in owning property. It's your property and no one else has the right to, to, to determine its use since you have purchased it as a residence for your own purposes. And the point is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, appealed to how Christ purchased his people so that they would be temples of the Holy Spirit. As a, and he appealed to this as a reason for Christians to flee from sexual immorality. We, in the end, don't belong to ourselves, but Christ has bought us. So then, we should not use ourselves contrary to our owner's wishes. So this whole passage, these eight verses, pivot around Paul's instruction in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This instruction summarized everything that had been said before it and encapsulate what Paul will say just after it here. And Paul used three theological arguments to uphold, build up, support this command. So if we can review verses 12 to 14, rebuked sexual immorality because of Christ's purposes for our bodies, even in making them. And then verses 15 to 17 appealed to Christ's authority to dissuade the Corinthians from sexual immorality. And then verses 18 to 20 ground our charge to flee immorality in Christ's ownership of his people. So we previously saw how Paul demonstrated in verses 12 to 14 that God made us for specific purposes and engaging in sexual immorality runs contrary to those purposes. We also saw in the next verses how they teach that we are members of Christ and so we are joined to Him as train cars to a locomotive. And being a member of Christ in this way places us under His authority. And now we come to Paul's final supporting statements in verses 18-20 to for fleeing sexual immorality, which concerns how sexual immorality is in some way distinct from every other sin. But uh, the fact that Christ bought us should make us see that we should not use our bodies that are bought by Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit for, for purposes that rob God of His glory. We should instead use our bodies to glorify Him. So the main point is that Christ's ownership of us means we should flee from sexual immorality. Christ's ownership of us means that we should flee from sexual immorality. And we're going to consider this in three points, distinction, destruction, and deliverance. So first, distinction. And what I want to do here is think about how Paul connected fleeing from sexual immorality and and being the Holy Spirit's temple. And so I'm going to think about that sort of as an idea here. And then in the next point, I'm going to illustrate it and then 
see how it might challenge us. So the, the previous two sermons on this letter looked at how Paul demolished every attempt to rationalize sexual sin. Such a tendency in fallen people to explain away why we should be able to sin the way we want, but God created us with specific purposes for our bodies, which means what we do with our bodies is is far from an indifferent matter. Since our bodies were made for communion with God and are now joined to Christ as our representative and are on our way towards resurrection, we should not take them and join them to someone in immorality. And now we come to this culmination of, of the discussion in verses 18 to 20. So read, have the text in front of you and, and let's read it together. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, leading up to this, verses 12-17 outlined the situation that every Christian is meant for uh, and is a member of Christ. We're meant for Christ and we are a member of Christ the situation and verse 18 tells us our response to that situation should be to flee from sexual immorality so our connection to christ as a member of him entails that we run the other direction from immorality and then everything after verses 18 verse 18's command further supports that instruction. Namely, by explaining what is in some way distinct about the sin of sexual immorality in relation to our union with Christ. So there's something distinct about this. Now, while every other sin is outside the body, Paul says this sin is against our own bodies. Now, I I think we need to say that sexual immorality is not somehow worse than every other sin. I don't think that's the point. But it is in some way different, in some way distinct. So the question is, how is this sin against our own bodies? Which has, I think... Nothing to do, and I don't think we can support from this passage, that it has anything to do with health concerns, but has to do with particular moral effects of this sin. The the point is not that other sins do not affect the body, but that no other sin is against the body in the same way that sexual immorality is. So, I, I said last, if you, 
think back uh, and we're paying attention, I said last week that there are these rhetorical questions that Paul has used throughout this letter frequently that begin with, do you not know that? And he uses this technique a lot in this letter. And I think that this question obviously assumes that the reader should understand the answer. But they also work to specify further reasons for what Paul has just said. In other words, Paul could have easily just said because, but that, I think, would lose the implication that you should already know this. And that's part of what he's driving home by using the question. So when when Paul asked, or, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He was explaining the reason that sexual immorality is a distinct sin against a Christian's own body. That's the explanation of how this is a distinct sin. And so we need to think about and connect how our bodies, being a temple of of the Holy Spirit, how does that connect with sexual immorality being a sin against our own bodies in such a a different way from every other sin. And so I think that we think back to earlier in this passage we discussed last time about sex as an authority issue. It entangles us in authoritative relationships as we'll consider Soon, 1 Corinthians 7.4 states in a discussion about conjugal rights that husbands and wives have authority over each other's bodies. And Paul already quoted Genesis 2.24 to show that marriage binds two people in relationship under God's authority in that the sexual act creates a one flesh relationship. Paul Therefore, return to his point about authority from these other verses that sex is an authority issue. In this case, highlighting that we should flee sexual immorality because we are the triune God's property meant to be devoted to worship. So the distinction between sexual immorality and other sins is that it defies Christ's authority over his people. Brings us to our second point. Destruction. So I, I've so far I've tried to work through ver- most of verses 18 and, and 19 to connect Paul's action to flee with being the Holy Spirit's temple, which is somehow what makes immorality a distinct immorality a distinct sin. And I know that this is maybe perhaps not yet quite clear. So what I want to do first here is try to illustrate this to clarify how the question relates to authority and God's purposes before turning to look at how this challenges us. So, so to illustrate, right. So we meet here at, at St. Baltoff's uh, with Aldersgate uh, as our designated building for worship. This is our place for communing with God corporately. And we have this room at the back that we use as a crush so that our 
children can have a place uh, to be when they need to. And so now, imagine, super hypothetically, imagine that we decided to sublet that room to a group of witches so that they can conduct satanic worship the same time we worship the triune God in here. This is not under discussion, by the way. Uh, you would be outraged, right? We should be, that we would choose to let a building that has been designated for worship of the true God be simultaneously used for pagan purposes. This is a, a sin against the building in a, in a very specific sense that it defies those exact reasons for which we obtained these premises. And there is a sense, though, another sense, in which if we defaced this property with graffiti or, or broke the windows or, or burned it down or something like that, that is also a type of sin against the building and damaging it. But those ways of, of sinning against it are very different in that they don't run entirely contrary to the purposes for which we we have this property those are damaging actions for sure but but they do not tie the entire property wholesale to to wicked things that are fundamentally contrary to its purposes and the the point for this illustration is that is is what it is like with our bodies and sexual immorality. Yes, it, it is true that drugs, abuse of alcohol, self-harm, other, other things like that that damage our, our bodies in sinful ways. But those things do not essentially in wholesale take our entire person and, and shift our place of authority and purpose to something other than Christ. So it's unimaginable to approve of using space committed to worshiping the true God for worshiping false gods. But that's what we do in sexual sin. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, having been joined to Christ and the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, it is unimaginable that we would tie these temples of the Holy Spirit to an authority other than Christ, which is what fornication does. That illustration about how we use the, the temp, or use, use a building meant for worship also leads us into considering a, a particular challenge from this passage. Now, I, I am assuming that all of the, the members of this congregation all agree that it would be an outrage to lease part of these premises for some sort of demonic worship. But I also expect that we would be uncomfortable if a, if a group met just in the park, just outside outside of our building for the same reason. It's not inside our 
worship halls in the sense that we didn't make the decision, but it would still, rightly, bother us that such a practice would even be close to where we worship. And so then, as we think about our bodies as the Spirit's temples, premises set apart for communion with the triune God, we have to ask ourselves if we are as rigid about what gets close to our bodies, at least in terms of sexual immorality. And I'm digging into how it should convict us that God told us in verse 18 to flee from sexual immorality, which is not a settle reaction to this sin. We read in Genesis 39 about Joseph um, and Potiphar's wife trying to seduce Joseph. So two things are worth thinking about from from that passage. And I I think the first thing uh, is uh, when Potiphar's wife proposed this affair, Joseph responded in verses 8 and 9 by appealing to what his master had done for him. And the fact that he had a master. His master's goodness was a a driving factor in rejecting sexual sin. And now second, when Joseph was put into a situation that might facilitate sexual sin, namely no one else was in the house besides him and the woman trying to seduce him, when he found himself stuck in this situation, he fled She grabbed his cloak and he left it behind. And the point is that Scripture enjoins us to get as far from sexual sin as possible. And I think people, Christians even today, tend to ask questions like, how much is okay? How far can I go? Christians in dating relationships want a line to which they can go all the way against and and feel like they aren't sinning if they don't cross it. We rank how illicit the material we see on TV or online is to console ourselves that we didn't watch something that was outright immoral. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that. Sometimes we even hear stories of ministers with inappropriate relationships with women in their churches trying to defend themselves because it wasn't an outright physical relationship yet. And I just think we should take the opposite approach. It's not how close can I get and not be sinning. It's how far can I get from sinning? If, if we know where, where the line is on any of these issues, we should run the other way. Paul did not say here. I mean, did, have you thought about this language? Paul didn't say, stop short of sexual immorality. He said, flee it. This is a fire that will burn. This is a monster that will devour. Don't play with it. The question 
is for us, how lightly have we taken this matter? How nonchalant have you been about guarding yourself for purity? The the devil would love to have us on this matter. And if I sound like I'm trying to scare you, I am a little. I don't want us to live in fear, and we will talk about the gospel equipping us, but this is not something to let linger on the outskirts of our consciousness. We should be fighting, resisting, fleeing from this in every way we can because sexual immorality has so often been our destruction. Which brings us to think about our third point, deliverance. And so Paul did not leave us in fear. So, neither will I. This passage does assert Christ's rights over us as our owner. But before we think about that as, as, as Christians, before we think about that as some sort of imposition, we should think about that as a massive comfort and encouragement. We belong to Jesus Christ. From the middle of verse 19, you are not your own for because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. And this, this explains for us The implications of of being the Holy Spirit's temple. Since you are the Holy Spirit's temple, you don't belong to you. So you actually, you don't have the right to use your body in ways that you want if they are contrary to God's purposes for you in creation and redemption. The, The reason that you don't belong to yourself because you were bought with a price. Now, we've, we opened thinking about when you buy a home. It, it's yours and you decide what to do with it. And so it's like when you buy a home to use for your purposes and, and someone down the road cannot just use it for a party, so too Christ bought us. And we do not have the right to play host to sin. And this brings us to consider deeply, I hope, how Christ owns His people. It is true that God owns every creature in one sense since He created them. In another sense, though, Only believers belong to God since it is only for believers that Christ died. So Christ did not hypothetically purchase every person as if it is now left to us to choose whether we accept to come under Jesus' ownership. Just like you would select the home that you want and buy that home, so too. Jesus knew the specific people for whom he died. 
So John 10, if, if we think about John 10, sheds some light on this doctrine called definite atonement. In verses 27 to 29 of John 10 say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The sheep are those who know and follow Jesus, but the Father has given these specific people who follow Jesus to Jesus as sheep. Now, I think, think, for whatever that's worth, I think the doctrine of election is pretty clear in this metaphor of Christians as sheep. But then we can add something further to that. Because Jesus said in verses 14 and 15 of John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus claimed that he laid down his life specifically for his sheep. We know that the sheep are people that the Father gave to him. What our confession, chapter 8, paragraph 5, summarizes these portions of Scripture, I think, pretty well. The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father have has given unto him. So this means, to bring this home, this means if you are a believer, then Christ came from heaven and sought you. He did this for your deliverance. He did not die an open-ended death, but He died for you. He purchased reconciliation and an everlasting inheritance. Christian specifically with you in mind. It is of great comfort in our hardest moments of temptation that Christ thought of you when He died. Because He wanted you. That is the Master we should long to serve. Not the one that would dominate us in immorality and enslave us to continually unsatisfying lust, but the Master who would give Himself out of deep, deep love to have you. And even when we fail, perhaps though we pray not, even in this area, 
Jesus died, knowing every sin that his people would commit, and paid for it because he wanted you. Jesus was not indifferent in any way about those who might belong to him, but instead bought you because he loves you. Christ has snatched us from the clinches of sin, including sexual immorality, and paid the eternal penalty of every sin we would commit and has made us His adopted siblings bound for resurrection life. Since then, we belong to Christ. This Christ who would give Himself not for everybody, for you. Let us glorify God in our bodies. Not not because we bear some slavish burden, but because our Savior has ransomed and renovated us by His life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Father God, we know that this particular sin will tempt and plague your church likely from now until Christ's return. But we pray that you would help us. We pray that we would learn to value more that we belong to Jesus than we value the allures of the world in this temptation especially. Protect your people here in this congregation. Protect us from this temptation for your glory that we might live according to the purposes for which you made us, that we might live for the purposes for which you redeemed us. Let us glorify you in our bodies. Help us. Save us even from temptation. Deliver us. As, you, as your Son taught us to pray, deliver us even from temptation. We cry out in desperation on this matter because we have seen it ruin so many over the centuries. But we pray that we would not leave here in simple fear of this, although we hope that we are aware and afraid of what this could do to us, we pray that you would send us out built up in the gospel, knowing that we belong to a wonderful master who gave himself to have us. Help that to grip our hearts so that we can live holy lives fueled of joy of belonging to the Savior. Plant us deeply within that truth. Help us to love it. Help us to love that more than we love anything this world might offer us. And help that to be the driving force of all that we do as your people. We pray these things in Christ's name.